difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson. In our last episode, we talked about Orson Welles' 1973 film, F for Fake, a not-quite-documentary about forgers, authenticity, and the meaning of art. This week, we're bringing in Dick Johnson is Dead, in which Kirsten Johnson documents the decline of her father with occasional breaks to stage his death and depict his afterlife in heaven. Dick Johnson is Dead is Kirsten Johnson's second film as a director, but, like its predecessor, the work of someone with a long history making movies. Her first directorial effort, Camera Person, wove together scraps of footage from her years as a documentary cinematographer into a kind of memoir made up of outtakes from throughout her career. With Dick Johnson is Dead, she pushes the autobiographical instinct even further. When her father, psychiatrist Richard Johnson, is diagnosed with dementia, she decides to turn his decline into a project by staging his death for the camera with his enthusiastic participation. What follows is a rumination on memory, movie illusions, death, and what remains after we're gone. We'll talk it over after the break. Just the idea that I might ever lose this man is too much to bear. He's my dad. Let's start walking, just start walking to me. That's fantastic. I suggested we make a movie about him dying. <laughs> he said yes. She kills me multiple times. Action! The resurrected dad. Yeah, that's resurrected cool. dad. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's upon us, the beginning of his disappearance. The thing I hate most about my memory loss is that it hurts people's feelings. You know that you woke up in the middle of the night last night. You got fully dressed. Do you remember any of that? No. Yeah. What can we do about that? I don't know. Everybody has to sort of prepare because everybody dies. I love life too much for that. <laughs> so, Dick Johnson is dead, everybody. I like this movie a lot. A lot, a lot. What about, what about everybody else? I mean, I'd seen this film at True False. It was one of the last things I saw and one of the last conversations I had with, with her before everything shut down. <laughs> and, and when I saw it, I was thinking there's just no possible way I'm going to see a film that I like more uh, this year. And uh, so far that's held, though I guess a lot of movies have not come out <laughs> to challenge it. But I'm obviously a pretty huge fan of it. I think it's kind of a magical experience and that it is a film that I think might fill us with dread to, to watch you know th this idea of kirsten johnson filming her father's decline uh but she's turned it in such a way she's spun it in such a way to where it's frequently joyous and um fun and palatable you know and thoughtful and you know and also on top of everything else a marvelous deconstruction of nonfiction filmmaking. So I think it's a rich film and emotional. And it's like, a, at the time I thought it was like, this is like an Abbas Kiriostami film that like my parents could see and hmm. be fine. So I, I'm a big fan. Yeah. If we hadn't already done close up, it would make a good pairing with close up. 
yeah, no no arguments here. I'm a big fan of this movie. I was a big fan of Camera Person. And I like how this feels like Camera Person, like a very personal film, but in a totally different way and using just totally different methods, but that are still very much about the tools of filmmaking. But there is also the factor of Richard Johnson himself, who is just such a this movie wouldn't have worked if he was a different sort of man than he is. Like it comes through in every frame, even though he is, you know, kind of deteriorating over the course of the movie as far as his, his dementia goes. But he never really loses, at least that we see that sort of essential, I don't know, spark, whatever you want to call it, that I think compelled her to use him in this way in this film and that compelled him to say yes to participating in this film. Like it's very a very extraordinary thing that she asked of her father and that he did so willingly and seemingly happily. You know, normally that's the kind of thing that you would put into the realm of extra textual, but that's like not a, a line that matters with this movie, I don't think. But yeah, I'm there's a lot to talk about with this movie. I want to hear what others think about it, but you will you will hear no no disagreement from this quarter about, you know, it being a great film. Yeah, I don't know how rationally or critically I can discuss this film. It hit me way too hard. I don't know that I recommend it for people with parents or people who <laughs> love their parents uh, or people who are watching their parents age. Like uh, this is this is a great film for six year olds um, with, with young, healthy, vibrant parents. And anybody after that, I'm not sure about. It's a lot. It's um, you're watching somebody slowly die on camera and you're watching his daughter cry about it and talk to him about it and process it in real time. You're watching the process of her challenging both of their limits and both of their experiences and both of their understanding. And it's pretty daring, but boy, is it, I want to say raw. And then at the same time, you have these just like Lambert fantasy sequences that are exactly the opposite of that, that are these just strange, like Corita level fantasies. And it's very hard for me to kind of like put it all together or, or really address it in any sort of thinking way. I dreaded going into this movie a little bit. And uh, I, I came out kind of thinking, what am I doing if I recommend this to people? I, I had to talk to another film critic about it today. Someone who, did lose a father relatively recently and is this clearly still very emotional about it. And, uh, you know, we had to talk about it in terms of you kind of need to be prepared going in and you kind of need to be in the mind space for it. You kind of need to give yourself some breath afterwards before you sit down to talk about it critically. Yeah, it's it's definitely not like a, a light, you know, Sunday afternoon, what are we going to watch with the kids kind of movie. It's 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 painful um, and frank. And did I already say daring? I think it's pretty daring. As I usually do when I hear something that's at a festival that everyone loves, I don't read that much about it. And I just kind of vaguely knew what it was about and avoided spoilers. And then when I went up to watch it on, on Netflix, you know, they do the sort of very, you know, concise Netflix description of what the movie's about. It's like, you know, and they focus on the whole faking the deaths aspect of it or simulating the death uh, aspect of it. It's like, this doesn't really sound like something the person of camera person would make. And it also sounds, frankly, a little tacky. And then you see it in the film and it's it's remarkably well done. And you understand why it's there and understand that it is 
in a strange but totally understandable way, um, you know, allows them to process what they're going to make in a way that kind of makes fun of it, but also deals with it at the same time. I mean, there's a lot going on in this movie, and it's a movie I would I would happily. I know it is an intense experience, but there's a lightness to it as well, and it's a movie I would happily watch again. It's it's not something I would dread a second viewing of. I do think it's tacky, though. I, I think it's deliberately tacky. I think it kind of revels in the tacky. I mean, there's a sequence where they fake her father's death via a like Keystone Cops level of construction worker with a giant board with a nail sticking out of it gets distracted and accidentally swings it into her father's throat as he's walking along the sidewalk in New York and then he sprays arterial blood everywhere. Like, that's silly. I mean, you're watching somebody like bleed out and die in public due to a tragic accident, but you're also watching something that's a little bit Grand Gunyal and a little bit, as I say, Keystone Cops. Like, I think that there is a tackiness to it. And the, the vision of heaven, I think there's a tackiness to that as well. That's downright gleeful. It, it's certainly extremely intended, but that doesn't mean it's not tacky. It just means it's intentionally tacky. It doesn't mean it's not moving either. I mean, the dance sequence with uh, with his, his late wife or, you know, quote unquote, late wife is uh, that's incredibly moving stuff. And God, so beautifully shot and mm. all of that stuff just shot in this like super slow motion, super high def uh, where you can just appreciate every line and every aspect of the choreography and the physicality of the dancers. Uh, that, that whole sequence is pretty remarkable in a lot of ways. And the expressiveness of, of, of Dick Johnson's face, too. He's, he's just a remarkable presence, too. I think to be a good psychiatrist, you maybe have to have, like, just kind of, like, ooze empathy. Um, but, I mean, he just has this very open openness about it, which I also kind of pick up, I feel like, as part of, of at least the Kirsten Johnson that we get to know via her films, is part of her personality as well. Yeah, I was reading some interviews with her prior to this recording, and she thinks of herself as a funny person, you know, she, and in this piece, she says, you know, there was one laugh in camera person. I was like, we made an hour and a half long film and there was one laugh. So I was really committed to there being humor in this film. And, you know, I think it does function as a comedy. And yes, there is certainly tragedy there. But I've cried at this movie, it made me emotional. But I ultimately came out of it feeling like I had had, on balance, a more joyful experience mm. than a sorrowful one. And again, like I said, I think Richard Johnson himself is a, a huge part of that. And in another <laughs> interview with our friend Rachel Handler, um, she actually put, this is actually Rachel's words in her introduction. She says, here are two people who love and trust each other so deeply that they'll joyfully confront death together before it's even arrived. And I think just the the connection between them and the simpatico between them as far as this project. It wasn't that it made it not sad, but it made it more palatable for me, I guess, or it made me, you know, it made me sad in a in a happy way. I cried in this movie the way I love to cry at movies. You know, we talk, I've talked about being a movie crier before, and most of this movie, I was in some stage of, of teary, you know, but it never felt like it was overwhelming me or too much. It's bittersweet. Yeah. And I also kind of want to go back to the staging of the deaths and then being, as Tasha said, tacky or these sort of absurdist deaths. And and they are to a certain extent, but they are also all grounded 
in a sort of realism, you know, again, with in that uh, interview with Rachel, she says, you know, we started working with Netflix, I had a budget ahead of time for the first time in my life. So I could think really big. I imagine we travel the globe, put my dad on an ice flow and float him out, go to Hong Kong and have him jump out of a building and catch on fire. Then it became totally obvious that my dad couldn't do that. He's a fragile 86 year old who doesn't have toes, who's in danger of tripping and falling. And I realized all of that was escapist fantasy. Ground level falls, in fact, are the most frequent way that elderly people die. And so the deaths that happen in this movie, he falls down the stairs. You know, obviously getting walloped on the street is a, a little more heightened, but it could easily happen. And they're all very tied to the place he is in that moment. Like the board with a nail in it comes shortly after he's moved to New York to live with her. And we also have that fake out of him getting hit by a car. You know, and these are dangers to an elderly person that are very tied to the place he is now, just as falling down the stairs is very tied to the place he was leaving, which was the house where he lived alone. So obviously, the deaths themselves, the way they're staged, they're done so in a way that they don't feel quote-unquote real in a visual sense, necessarily, but they think are intended to feel real in terms of who Richard of the life that Richard Johnson is is leading. I think there's also, um, I mean, there's that element of fantasy at play too, in that, in that those deaths are all quick deaths. I mean, both of Kirsten Johnson's parents were long goodbyes. Uh, were situations where her, her parents were, you know, I mean, mother had Alzheimer's, her father has dementia. Um, Still alive, are, by the way. Is, yeah. Spoiler. No, as of today, an article that posted today, Dick Johnson, incidentally, is currently safely stationed in a minimally occupied home for dementia in Maryland. Hmm. So if you want an update. Yeah. Well, and also, it's just this is, this is of course, an attempt to make him live forever mm-hmm. in movies. Right. <laughs> so there's that touching element, too. I mean, I think the ending is just, like, astonishing. Like, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the way that plays out, it's just so moving and so Oh, his perfect. friend. His, his friend. Oh, that was something. Oh, that, that <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, before, but, I'm talking about the very, but yeah, oh, that yeah. was rough. Oh, yeah, I thought you meant the, the funeral. I was talking about the, the scene in the closet and then her coming out right. and him being there. Um, right, but so yeah, cool. no, of course. Of course, that whole sequence. I mean, if you're talking about just purely heartbreaking or, or moving moments, I mean, there, that is pretty overwhelming but but then it's punctuated with that horn that horn moment which is probably the biggest laugh in the movie and it's a laugh you feel weird about like you know like all the laughs in this movie are kind of laughs you feel weird about i think intentionally so and that i think is just peak weird laugh I, i think it's meaningful that that's the laugh where she pans around the crowd and finds other people that are looking dismayed or fighting back laughter Uh, she's she is kind of cueing to you like Mm -hmm. yes this is ridiculous it's it's okay to laugh but then she cuts to the that man the ray dick johnson's best friend just sobbing Mm -hmm. his heart out uh, off to the Mm -hmm. side during the course of this funeral and there were a couple of moments in this film where i i wondered like is this exploitative is this Mm -hmm in the attempt to push the boundaries as she pushed the boundaries too far. And one of those moments came when she admits that she doesn't know where her father's boundaries are anymore. She doesn't know when she's gone too far, when it becomes inappropriate. And and she also says, he'll do anything for me. He will do anything I ask him to do. And that just made me wonder at times, like, are there points that go too far? There's the point where he's standing there covered in blood. And he says, Mm -hmm. this is worse than my heart attack. That was the hardest part. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, there There are points where I question, like, is this elder abuse? I, and, 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 I think she's a good caretaker of her father the overall, though. segment with Ray, just in particular, just had me wondering, like, where is somebody comforting him? You know, where is somebody helping him through this? And it might have happened one second after the camera cut away. But, you know, you're left with that image of a man like disconsolately weeping over something that hasn't happened yet. And you know that not only is he suffering now, he's going to suffer through all of this again at some time in the future if he outlives Dick. It's it's hard to watch. But the thing is, like, it has happened. Like, I think the point of that funeral is that, like, and, and Johnson has said this in, in interviews, like, she's not going to have a funeral for Dick Johnson when he passes. Like, that was his funeral because these people had already experienced, like, the sort of long goodbye of her mother, his wife. And, you know, at, at that point, his dementia, it was already a, a point of fact, you know, every everyone knew what was coming. And it's it was a goodbye. It was a goodbye to the Richard Johnson they knew. And I agree with you that I think Ray is probably the point in the film where I feel like it edges closest to exploitation. I I have to believe that she cleared that with him. But she also has spoken to the realization of needing to put herself in this movie. Like, you can't just put this all of this sort of emotional load onto your father and and leave yourself out of it like you have to put your voice in it and speak to your emotions and your comp and the complications you're feeling otherwise i think that exploitative feeling would have come through even more strongly i think it's tempered by johnson kind of engaging with it and engaging with when it's hard and when it feels like maybe it was a bad idea and she's not sure if what she's doing is is right but in the end i think that you know what she comes away with is like such a beautiful portrait of her dad at this stage of his life you know and then if you extrapolate to who he was before we are actually spending time with him i think it's a gift to her father i think that just kind of negates any discomfort around exploitation for me personally i mean i think it's a it's a joyful collaboration for one and the, and the one thing i always think about too is that she doesn't have footage of her mother before her mother was lost essentially to alzheimer's and you know this is this is a chance to capture her father in his essence you know i mean i think you get a wonderful sense of this very positive thoughtful caring man and and how much father and daughter you know mean to each other and this is something that she can have and treasure forever this whole experience and be able to share with us it's fantastic weird like i mean you know i mean obviously palatable i guess is the word i mean it, it, i guess that's where where tasha kind of departs from the rest of us a little bit but given the film's project given what it's trying to do what, it, what the reality of the film is i think it does so much to try to give you a sense of joy and fun and whimsy and kind of a bittersweet quality that keeps it from being a dirge. I, I, you know, but, um, but again, it has to do with your personal response. So I'm not going to, you know, obviously minimize Tasha's here. Clearly it was also a movie about somebody who is dying and is going through a lot of really tough things. And, um, you know, the daughter's having to experience all that too. So, uh, that's all there and, uh, is hard. Certainly, um, this is a film that punches you in the gut too. 
All right. Well, there's plenty more to talk about, but we're going to talk about it in the context of the previous film we paired this with, uh, F for Fake. We'll talk that over after the break. So this is what I'm going to stick to your neck. This is where the blood will actually come out of. This is going to go along here. And then all of this is going to go back down through your wardrobe. Down here. And then I pump the blood through there, which forces it to just shoot just right in. Yep. Right, right here. here. <laughs> from the makeup store. Not from the makeup store. It's by real blood. No. No, 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 no. I no, no, never no. do that on a movie. Never, never. Oh, I thought you just explained to me how you do it. No, it's all fake, with <laughs> all fake blood. It's like blood. Paint. all fake blood. Fake blood. Oh, that's a relief. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought you were talking... They'll do a transfusion. My, my blood. No, they don't want your blood. Good. <laughs> I like my blood. I've grown accustomed to it. So. You, you can hang on to all of your blood. Good. Not a drop of your blood will be Excellent. spilled on okay. this plan. Very good. Okay, so you feel comfortable with it? I, I'm comfortable with that. Thank you. Great. I would say just keep saying the words fake, fake blood. Fake blood. That's fake only, blood. Let's all only use the word fake, fake blood. blood. Yes. yes. Now it's time for connections. When we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. You know, where do we start here? I guess, you know, they're both concerned with authenticity in their own way. How do they differ in their approaches to talking about what's real and what's not? I mean, I think one thing that's sort of significant is that Kirsten gives you so much of kind of the the behind the scenes that I was asking for as we wrapped up talking about F for Fake. That sense of, well, I want to know where all this footage comes from. I want to know what they stitched together to create this artistry, because he's emphasizing so much that it's all artistry, that it's all false. And by contrast, Kirsten lets you see the setup. She lets you see the casting for the stunt doubles that are going to die in her father's stead. She lets you see the the makeup process and the uh, like assembling the props and the rehearsal. And then she lets you see what the, the recreations look like. So there's never any sense with most of the recreations, with one notable exception, that he's under any threat or that you should be concerned about anything you see because she goes to the trouble of exposing the artifice at every level and exposing to some degree kind of the challenge and the buildup. It's kind of a, a fun little uh, kind of behind the scenes of like mini, like a, a behind the scenes for a YouTube video, essentially. <laughs> like uh, here's here's the stunt, but here's everything that went into the stunt. And some of those sequences are actually really fun. I, I kind of love the the casting the stuntmen sequences where you've got Dick Johnson like walking back and forth and these young, burly, tattooed men who look nothing like him walking back and forth kind of in his shadow, paying attention to how he stoops, where he puts his arms, like the length of his stride, that sort of thing. <laughs> I kind of had a moment of why would they cast these like young muscular dudes? And like one of them has guns bigger than his head. Like they, they look nothing like him. And then they costume them up and pad them out. And all of a sudden <laughs> they look a lot like him. I, I kind of enjoyed Dick Johnson just as a tiny little micro lesson in some of the artifice of filmmaking. Again, in that interview with Rachel, which I'm just I'm going to make sure we link in our show notes because it's a, it's really good. She's a really good interview subject. But one thing she says it's related to that. She says I well, got. She's really... a very good interviewer too. Let's not that's leave true. That out. That's Rachel true. Handler, good interviewer. <laughs> uh, Johnson says I got really interested in stunt people. They're putting their physical bodies at harm to be invisible in a movie to create escapism for the rest of us. I love the metaphor of that. I wanted to turn things inside out, including my role. And to bring it back to this question of authenticity, I think in the case of Kirsten Johnson, her 
putting herself into it, as as I was speaking about in, in the first half, you know, I think that is where the authenticity, that's the heart of it, of her putting herself into this film, because she hasn't really done that you know camera person I, I i feel like she maybe her face popped in once or twice in camera person but you know her her lens is the character there and you know she's always been a behind the camera person <laughs> so you know just taking the step of putting herself kind of at the center to the this film or adjacent to the center of, of this film anyway is a daring act for a documentarian of her stripe. Now, as far as Wells goes, he is someone who has been in front of the camera for most of his his career, you know, like he has an on-camera presence in addition to a behind-the-camera presence. So, you know, we talked in the first half about the film itself kind of, in the end, being about Wells, you know, despite all these other sort of avenues it meanders down it is effectively a film about him as a filmmaker at, at that point in time and i don't know it, i'm struggling to see where the authenticity comes in f for fake i mean <laughs> the title right there would seem to to run contrary to it i guess i wouldn't use the word authenticity so much as candor mm. uh, to describe a link between wells and johnson here in that both of them are sharing with the audience the fact that what they're seeing is fake. I mean, mm-hmm. that they're, 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 they're showing you the, all of the tools, you know, of the trade, and, the, and they're laying bare elements of um, craft that most movies try to disguise. Uh, and that's kind of what I meant on the earlier show about Effort Fake being ahead of its time. I mean, I think Dick Johnson is Dead is coming along. It kind of represents where nonfiction is right now, where, where it's like we can... Let's stop pretending, for example, that directors of documentaries and their subjects are not collaborators. Mm. They're collaborators. They're not, you know, it's not, it's, there's not that remove. They're collaborators, not unlike actors are. So there, there's a relationship there. And, you know, and Camera Person was about interrogating those relationships, too. So that's there, too. And, and of course, the, these are both films about filmmaking, and it lays everything bare. And, I mean, even when we were talking earlier about some of the decisions that Johnson makes and whether we are comfortable with them, it's like this is a film that's very open about what it's doing. And, and maybe some of those we might judge as ethical mistakes, you know, or, or errors in judgment or something. But she's not trying to hide any of it. You know, she says everything is just being opened up for us to see. And, and by opening it up, it doesn't make it uh, more obvious or ruin the illusion. It, it makes it, things more complex and it makes us think about how you know, movies are constructed. Um, and so that's something that both these films have, have a lot in common in that respect. Both films kind of play fast and loose with a chronology as well. Uh, uh, the Wells film, more obviously than than Kirsten Johnson is dead, but the, even there, you know, of course, you get the extraordinary final scene, which which is all about playing with chronology. But uh, even before that, you kind of get, you know, a leap back to Seattle. You're not really sure when a few things happen, and of course, the I'm not sure when he was in heaven when they filmed the heaven scenes. But uh, uh, but that's that's sort of a, a leap out of chronology entirely to to set some stuff in heaven. How do these films deal with those approaches? I think in Dick Johnson is Dead, it has the effect of hopefully keeping you from fixating too much on to what state he has deteriorated to. Mm. Like, you know, I think with stories of dementia, there's a real sort of temptation to like 
track a deterioration as if we're making our ways toward the inevitable end. And that's not really how it works. I mean, kind of in in the broad sense, but in sort of the day to day experience of of being with a person who has who is dealing with dementia. I've only had the barest experience of of that. So I apologize if I'm speaking off term, but, but it seems like it's you know, when you're in it, you're not necessarily thinking about the long arc of it. And I think, I mean, there are some indicators in Dick Johnson is dead, like of the order things happen in, like he obviously moves from Seattle to New York. But, you know, I I think it keeps us from like tracking the chronology of his illness and instead focusing on the just the experience of being with him in this moment in whatever state he is in as as she is capturing him. And I honestly didn't feel like we were jumping around in time too much. The only time it really stuck out to me was the sort of the coffin reveal during the funeral uh, sequence at the end, because early in the film, we see him being filmed in that casket um, and that being very upsetting to Ray. And then he's sort of like, during the funeral sequence, the casket, him in the casket is like superimposed. And then we kind of have that moment, again, speaking of sort of laying bare the tools of filmmaking where the the casket sort of is taken away and it's revealed that Dick is there and comes down. I, I think that's a, a very, very lovely ending. So I think, you know, tricky chronology in Dick Johnson is Dead is used with purpose. I think in F for fake, it is used for trickery, (laughs) Um, which is fine because that is kind of what the film is is on about in general. But it's used in the service of character in Dick Johnson is Dead. And there really isn't a character in F for fake other than than Wells himself that I think we have any real attachment to. So the jumping around in in time, it just feels like trickery or another example of, of trickery. And that's fine. I think part of the aspect of F for fake using it in that, that trickery sort of way, I think F for fake is ultimately much more of an act of syncretism. And it's kind of pulling together all of these ideas, I would say, in not the most informative or communicative way, but it's trying to draw in a whole bunch of different things at once. And by jumping around conceptually between them and, and jumping around in time and jumping around in focus, it's trying to show you the similarities between all of these things, the similarity between uh, forging art and selling it versus forging a memoir and selling it versus forging an identity and selling it. The connection between actual art as an act of creativity and forging art just as much of an act as an act of creativity. And, you know, what's what's going to be left behind when we're gone. It's it's all of these ideas kind of muddled up together. Whereas with Dick Johnson, it feels very deliberate to specifically to jump in and out of the heaven sequences. I feel like that sequence might be a little too ridiculous and a little too much if it was all together as opposed to something that we jump back and forth uh, with and, and in and out of. It's kind of like he's going off to his heavenly reward every time he dies, as opposed to putting all the deaths together and, and putting all of the heaven stuff together. I think that the way it's edited gives us these little heaven sequences kind of as as gifts. You know, we're more able to appreciate here he is, uh, like, 
catching popcorn on his tongue in slow motion, or here he is reveling in the reveal of his, uh, his heavenly body and its healed toes. Here he is like having this dance experience or collapsing into clouds or whatever. These are all were almost certainly shot at the same time as, as part of all of the same package, but they're kind of like doled out like little treats almost as a way of, of virtually and visually escaping. Every time the film gets a little heavy, every time the film gets a little sad, every time the understanding of his deterioration hits a little more, it's like, well, okay, so let's go back to the imaginary space where he, we're assuming that he's going to be someday and where everything is beautiful. It's like F for fake uses the jumping around to disorient you to get its message across. Mm. And Dick Johnson uses the jumping around to relax you so it can get its message across without it being too hurtful. Just to note that I think the heaven scenes <laughs> to kind of take it out of the chronology of the film and into the chronology of the filming, it sounds like based on that that interview with Rachel that that actually came a little later in the process, the idea to do that. Um, and she says at some point it was like, we need to stop killing him. It was not <laughs> fun for him. He was bloody and cold and outside. And I was like, why am I doing this to him? I wondered what would be pleasurable to him to go to heaven. And she goes on from there to speak about Freud and the uncanny, which is also good. You should read the interview. But, you know, I think that feeling of sort of relief or the feeling that this is a, a little gift comes from it being a a relief and a gift to her father in this, you know, this experience that was difficult for both of them, you know, and this was maybe a release valve on this whole project and it comes through on screen. And there's, with the heaven stuff, there's also kind of a fun, interesting juxtaposition between between that fantasy and then his own notions of what heaven is. I mean, he, he talks about, you know, heaven being around all of them, you know. I mean, that's an utterly contented person on earth, you know. And, 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 and you know, when they're not filming, it's even more heavenly because they've brought him his favorite chair <laughs> and his, you know, ottoman and he gets to take a nap, you know. And, and there's something so pleasing about watching him do that too so that that is as a kind of another layer of like of what heaven actually means for someone like him i mean obviously there's also all of the seventh day adventist stuff kind of we you know woven in there as well uh uh, i'm not sure what what to make of all, all of that whole spiritual component but um but there is a thing with i just think I mean, this is, doesn't really compare to F or fake. I'm kind of losing F or fake in this, but I do. I do think like the prevailing spirit of Dick Johnson and is dead comes from Dick Johnson and his view of life, which is so open and accepting and positive and kind of fun. You know that 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 that's kind of what kept it from being you know, a dirge for me. But you know, that's Dick Johnson's dead. I want to I want to like get too far away from F or fake, so well, I'll stop. <laughs> I just want to make the point that you you mentioned him taking a nap in his ottoman as opposed to the many, many other naps that he takes throughout the course of this film. What a strange, like, whenever we pair films up like this, we, we're always looking at either creator connections or big picture, big theme connections. And then we almost always get like one of these strange little coincidental connections. And the moment when 
he is in his ottoman sleeping and he just sort of gently soap bubble floats up to the ceiling and disappears mm-hmm. is just a very <laughs> surreal moment. And then Ephra Fake ends with Orson Welles, like slowly mm. levitating an old man who appears to be <laughs> sleeping or dead upward and then eventually whisking a cloth off of him. And he's also disappeared. And I, I just had a moment of, is this, is this just complete coincidence? Is this based in uh, the, the symbolism of, kind of the body disappearing on death like the physical form disappearing is this what we're getting at when we do this as a you know magician's act like we have multiple bodies disappearing over the course of of effort fake what is what a strange weird little rhyme between these two films well it kind of gets at another connection which is delusion a concept that both films are hugely interested in uh you know effort fake it's it's pretty obvious i mean the whole thing is a magic trick from the beginning and, and, you know, all about all these different levels of fakery and, and truth uh, in there as well. And then um, with Dick Johnson is dead, there's a lot of illusions that are created by fantasy and, and by, you know, these, these sort of staged sequences. But then there's the overall illusion that it's possible for someone to live forever in, in movies. That's mm-hmm. such an exciting idea th- that she's sort of bottled up this moment out of time and then and then ends the film so pointedly with the illusion that he's probably that he's gone and her opening the door and he's alive. And that's a trick. That's a trick that she plays on us and that's a trick that movies allow her to do and allows us to be kind of delighted by this illusion and you know and leave the film with like a little question mark with a moment that is defiant of of the very title of the movie. I had the thought before we started recording that we, you know, we maybe should have had a connection about a topic we've talked about before, movies about movie making, because I think these would, to some extent, both fall under that category. But I think the connection of illusion kind of gets at the same idea, you know, like they are, are both films that are that are preoccupied with the idea that what you present on screen becomes, it is both a, a lie, and it is a truth, you know, simultaneously. And at the same time, they both acknowledge and engage with filmmaking as a tool to create illusion, you know, whether through editing or through stuntmen or or through magic tricks, <laughs> you know, um, through through special effects. And to some degree, it feels like like the, we're going back to that sort of sense of smugness I got off of F for Fake. I feel like some of these illusions are like Wells smirking at the camera to the effect of, you didn't realize that when I stepped towards this white screen, I was going to, in one cut, be in front of a white screen in a different place. I fooled you. Mm. And it's the kind of I fooled you that's meant to make you rethink your preconceptions, that's made, meant to make you like look at the world anew. It's a very Socratic method of debate that's like, would you like to question all the ways in which you're wrong while I stand here and smugly uh, assert that I know more than you. And then like Dick Johnson's version of that is the like, hey, we're all hanging out together making this movie. Like you can be in on the whole process from start to finish. You can be in on the development and and the ideas and kind of the fun stuff of setting this up. And then the aftermath as well. You know, you can be in on we staged this death. Here's the end of it. But then here's after the end of it. 
you know, you're not left with the image of him lying broken and bleeding at the bottom of the stairs. You get Kirsten saying, can we change the, uh, the pose a little? Yeah, that's, that's even better. And just like repeatedly breaking the illusion to make sure that you're not left with the illusion where the illusion is, is kind of sad. Dick Johnson just feels like a much friendlier version of that to me. Well, one thing I think we should also talk about is how these films, you know, work as personal films with the documentarian himself or herself as being the subject. Because I, I you know, with I mean, we talked about Effort Fake being just so essence of Wells, <laughs> you know, I mean, just like him as the center of attention, him him as this um, artist with a very long history that he's sharing and, and deconstructing with us. And Dick Johnson is Dead, I think, is such a perfect fusion of Kirsten Johnson's personality. Because Johnson's personality, if you if you spent time around her, she is both a fearsome intellect and also an extremely approachable, very warm kind of like she's got like these very two very strong sides to her personality that I think come through in the movie and and um it was interesting to see her kind of operate at true false where she was just completely the center of attention because she's been for one you know it's, it's it, these are this is an audience and, and these are filmmakers who have known her for so long i mean she's been making movies as a cinematographer like for like 25 years so every filmmaker knows her and of course people you know are into camera person and then this movie was sort of like the the hit of the festival but like she's also extremely tall and wears very uh her clothes are very like striking you know she's coming she she does not blend and i think that people just were like coming up to her all weekend to kind of like share their experiences and and you know and she has this extremely attentive gaze what she's the way she engages with people i mean she's really she's a she's very much a people person i just think like think that that generosity of spirit and that fierce intellect kind of come through beautifully in this movie yeah um, but could yeah. she eat a lobster and <laughs> eat a steak because if not point point wells she might she might i would put it past her <laughs> i mean her father can eat three pieces of what looks like the richest cake right. on the oh, planet oh, double fudge. that's so sweet that grandkids are involved in the, making him a cake or bringing him the cake destroying the cake speaking of grandkids this this isn't really a connection but it hasn't come up elsewhere and since we're kind of talking about johnson as as a person i just want to note the interesting family she has uh and her the, the living situation it, it just kind of uh-huh. it's let pass without comment but i uh, i i did a little uh, research afterwards because i, I was curious yes. about it and uh uh-huh. she does indeed live uh next door to the fathers of her two children um, one of whom is filmmaker Iris Sachs, uh, who, yes. uh, and the other is painter Boris Torres. So, yeah, uh, very just modern, modern family, if you will. But uh, and you know, we see it, uh, we see it at work in in the film a little bit. But there's never any sort of comment or explanation on it. But it just seems like another example of her being yeah. a sort of a, a singular person. Well, also that scene in, in Lisbon. I can't. Remember. What's it? What's his most recent film with Marissa Tomei? And I always see his movies, and I didn't see that what's one. His, yet, what's his, what's his, what's his, uh, Oliver Sacks, right? I, Iris Sacks. No, Oliver Sacks is Sachs. the uh, neurologist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Frankie, you're talking about Frankie. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So right. So the scene where 
they're on a beach in Lisbon, and surely that was connected to the filming of mm-hmm. Ira Sachs's Frankie. Did which you is, did you see is, that one? I, I haven't seen it. yet. I did. I did. It was not. I, it's it's pleasant, but it's it's not on a level with my yeah. my favorites. Because I think I think he's so. quiet. Like when he's really good, he's quietly one of the best directors in America so right good. now. No, I mean it's totally worth seeing for sure. Yeah, I'll, I, I'll, I'll I get do, to it. For I do sure. love that. <laughs> I love that relationship. I think that's pretty cool. And uh, and yeah, clearly the Lisbon stuff was related to that in some way. Uh, before we drift too far off away from the, these films and their connections, I feel like we can't go out with talking about what's maybe the, the most critical connection between the two of them, which is the fact that these films are both kind of fundamentally about art in the face of death. Efrafake, as, as we've all said, like the heart of it, the monologue that really kind of makes it feel like an endeavor with a point, with a a focus, with a message, comes in that monologue about how everything that we sing will go down into the dark with us, but we still keep singing anyway, and we should keep singing anyway. The monologue kind of expressly says that Sometimes when we create art, it outlives our name. It outlives our reputation. We're not known for it. It's just known for itself and that that's fine. Maybe, maybe names aren't so important. And the contrast between that and a piece of art that is so specifically personal and about somebody's name surviving after their death. I mean, he's, it's in the title of the film. It's fundamentally meant to be a record of this one individual person and who he was and what his relationship was like with the woman who's making the film and what his attitude was towards all of these things and, and how he felt about death and how he felt about the degeneration coming to death. Like it's such an interesting contrast to me in terms of approaches, the approach that kind of like high-mindedly says credit for art may not survive, but it's important to make art anyway. And the approach that says, I don't want to let go of this one particular person. So I'm going to make art built entirely around him, not just so I'll have a record and we'll be able to remember him, but so everybody else can know him as well. So everybody else can have kind of an insight into what this experience was like uh, with this man that I love and that I'm going to lose. It's just two very interesting, I think, uh, and very, very different approaches to the question of what survives after we're gone, what our legacies look like. Yeah. yeah, I think you're almost dealing with separate passions in a way. I mean, because I think with Orson Welles, you're talking about art in a very abstract way. Not necessarily, you know, and, uh, and though I guess both are kind of opt- optimistic in their, a certain extent. But there's one thing if you talk about art in the abstract and then you're actually talking about a person, which is what Dick Johnson is dead is about. And you're right. I mean, this this is a movie that preserves him and preserves that relationship the relationship he has with his daughter. And I think it tries to do it in a way that is going to be perhaps inspiring to everybody else. I mean, it's not a, you know, it's, if it were, if Dick Johnson is dead, were just, you know, and didn't kind of, couldn't be applied or wasn't identifiable to the rest of us. It wouldn't work as as well, but I think we can take away a lot. Um, We can reflect on our own relationships with our parents or uh, children or whatever, you know, I mean, there's something just, inspiring about the way dick johnson and and kirsten johnson too make their way through the world with heart and compassion and openness you know curiosity adventure yeah sense of adventure right i mean you know all of this is like you bottle that up and it's just kind of gold (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, and I mean, and that's something that, that all of us can carry, you know, that anyone who encounters this movie can kind of carry from it is just a, a whole a different perspective on, on the world that's cheering, I think. Well, it seems like a good place to wind things down. Uh, Dick Johnson is dead, can be seen on Netflix. Uh, F for Fake is streaming on the Criterion channel, HBO Max and Canopy. It can be rented elsewhere digitally. And is addition, it's available on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray. And, and as usual, whether on the channel or the disc, uh, the Criterion options are the way to go. There's just a wealth of extras on there. There's a really good commentary uh, track to go with it, too. Um, so we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, it hasn't really been good for me lately. I, I have not watched this recently, but it is a film that I kept thinking of during F for Fake. Uh, and if it were released today, I would absolutely want to pair with that film. But alas, it came out 10 years ago, and it is called Exit Through the Gift Shop. Uh, it is a film by the artist Banksy, which if you're familiar with Banksy, should right away be an indication that this film is going to be something other than a straightforward documentary. Much like F for Fake, it's an essay film that kind of unspools along these different narratives paths, but unlike Effort Fake, it all comes together in a very satisfying way that nonetheless avoids a sort of simple pat conclusion. It's also a film that's very interested in the nature of art, the role of the artist, and the intersection thereof. And while the type of art it's focused on isn't technically forgery, there's definitely an imposter component at play in the figure of Terry Guetta, a wannabe street artist who refashions himself as Mr. Brainwash. Uh, it's also, like F or Fake, a film that's very tied to the idea of editing as filmmaking. Uh, the backstory of the film is that Guetta had filmed hundreds of hours of graffiti artists, but was unable to make it into any sort of functional film. So, Banksy took over the editing and it became his film, not unlike Wells and Reichenbach, I'll note, uh, while Geta ended up doing, let's say, something different as Mr. Brainwash. Given that this is a Banksy product and Banksy is a notorious trickster, it is hard to delineate between the film's on-screen and off-screen mythologies, uh, and there was a lot of speculation about whether the whole thing was a hoax when it first came out, and even more speculation about whether it mattered given the end product, which was nominated for a Best Documentary Oscar that year. Like I said, I haven't rewatched Exit Through the Gift Shop in a while, so I can't say uh, how well it holds up. My hunch is that it does so very well. And after sitting through F for Fake, I'm looking forward to having the time to uh, revisit uh, Exit Through the Gift Shop. It's rentable in all the usual places. Did anyone else uh, have make that connection while they were watching F for Fake? No, yeah, but it's a good one, though. It is yeah. a good one. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like Banksy's, like, re Banksy's rep seems to have, like, fallen since that movie. It'd oh, be, he had I, that, I big, that like... big, like, shredding the painting at auction stunt a, a couple of years ago. Uh, and there was uh, right. yeah. his sort of uh, fake uh, amusement park thing that people weren't so mm -hmm. into. But, well, whatever. Can't hit everyone out of the, mm -hmm. out of the park. Yeah. But it's a good movie. Yep. Uh, Scott, what about you? I had occasion for, uh, you know, I, I write this little newsletter double feature thing uh, for New York Times where they're watching newsletter every Friday. And I, my favorite of the kind of the more recent vintage Disney nature documentaries is Oceans by Jacques Perrine. And it's like, and the reason I like it so much is that it does have those kind of requisite Disney nature elements of just a little anthropomorphizing and some 
you know, kind of touchy feely, narr- new agey narration by um, Pierce Brosnan, but it's also full of just staggeringly beautiful abstract images but that's not the film i want to recommend even though i i would if you want to see one of those types of movies i would definitely check that out i wanted to recommend something the same filmmakers did before in france called uh winged migration mm-hmm. um which is about birds fr- flying great distances from one place to another and and following that's the entire movie it's just following different migratory patterns and and what's so interesting about it and almost calming about it is that it dials back on all the information you might expect there's very there is a little bit of narration but minimal and then but most of what you get is just the name of the bird how far they have to fly and where they're going then all that's handled in in a title and then you just watch them do it and it's just you know and, and just it's all about image making and aerial photography and bird formations and just the fact that when you're following birds i mean you get you get to see the globe but you get to see like this interesting topography from above you know i mean you get to see them flying through cities and mountains and you know ice flows and there's just like it's just a wonderful experience and the fact that it takes away some of the things that you might expect from a nature documentary like information <laughs> you know an educa- educational aspect i mean you know and now most a lot of them have you know sort of environmental uh, warnings because you know obviously things are not going so great it's, it's soothing just to see it more as like a pure act of cinema so it's kind of worth revisiting and i think it'll make you you know it's kind of a, a good feeling to watch now kind of transporting so uh winged migration and also obviously microcosmos from the you know it was kind of started that whole thing too that's pretty that's pretty great too so i love wing migration i'm, I'm a little sad we weren't uh, gonna talk about uh, disney nature though because <laughs> <laughs> have a, a surplus of thoughts on Disney nature I need to do something with but alas you do you've seen you've seen many of them we've both seen many of them we, yeah. maybe there should be some sort of collaboration at some point so, uh, like some sort talking, of bonus episode yeah I was gonna material. say maybe, maybe that's a, a bonus episode yeah yeah for sure but <laughs> the Disney nature the expose ones. we've all been waiting for <laughs> oh my god uh, Keith what about you um, I'm going to go film adjacent because I've, I'm deep in the weeds on a couple of watching projects that, that uh, probably don't really count for this. But there is a uh, podcast that's returning. We're talking you know, between – we talk to each other sometimes when we're not recording. And, and between recording things, we're <laughs> talking about how we, we missed the uh, podcast called uh, The Tobolowski Files, which was uh, created – produced and hosted by our, by our friend of the show, David Chen. And uh, it, it stars uh, character actor extraordinaire uh, Stephen Tobolowski who uh, reflects on uh, basically everything. It's like each, each episode is a, um, you know, a, a little bit of storytelling from Stephen Tobolowsky, which he does very well in addition to being a good actor. But he, he kind of uh, draws from uh, different parts of his life and kind of unpacks incidences and memories and uh, weaves them into, into stories. That, and uh, I, think, I think one thing I really like about it, you know, he is uh, a man in his in his sixties at this point. He's a lot of experience, but he always kind of the approach is always like sort of someone who's still learning, not someone who's like handing down bits of wisdom uh, from all that experience, but someone who's like still processing life and still trying to figure out what it all means. I, I think it's a it's a delightful podcast. And I was I was saying, you know, it's been off the air for three years, and, and listening to the new episodes uh, that I was sent, it's, it's like it's like putting on an old warm shirt. It's like, oh, I guess here's this here's this comforting thing that I'd I'd forgotten about. Uh, 
Uh, so it's, it's you know, check it out. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a website called thetobolowskifiles.com. I think there's a, a YouTube element too, but you can find all about it there. Having not listened to it at all, which is hmm. kind of ridiculous because people have been telling me do it to do it, listen to it forever. Oh, yeah. Like, what's the what's the gateway? Like, what's so, like the what's the episode that would just like knock you on your butt? The episode I always recommend when when is episode forty four, which is called "The Voice from Another Room," which is about his experiences co-writing the script to True Stories, the David Byrne film with uh, with Beth Henley, uh, the playwright who was his partner for years. And it is I'll forget the details, so and I don't want to spoil any surprises, but you'll basically learn how the band Radiohead is indirectly related to a very strange experience that uh, Stephen Tobolowsky had uh, in his in his younger years. Inspired uh, an incident in the film that inspired the song that inspired the band. But in terms of finding out what that is, I'll let people discover for themselves. So, you know, it's, mm. it's you can jump in at any point, though. One, one thing is there's no chronology to it. It's just kind of a kind of from all all across his life. And there's lots of good Hollywood stories, but also just sort of reflections on um, being a father, being a son, and and, uh, and so on and so forth. And so, being a boyfriend. Uh, yes. One of the, the big through lines, that which, again, not – the story itself is not chronological. Uh, you, you won't get kind of a start-to-finish story of this very central relationship in his life by listening to the the podcast start to finish but you will get it in very deliberate segments like you'll get it if you start at the beginning and go on till you come to the end and then stop uh, as lewis carroll would have said you end up with a portrait like pieced together like a, a giant jigsaw puzzle of how this relationship happened and how it operated and how it fell out uh, in a way that's just very consciously assembled. I think it's remarkable how much the individual episodes of the Tobolowsky files stand alone and independent. And yet at the same time, how much you can feel over time, them filling in all of these different holes and gaps that they de- they deliberately consciously leave uh, for the story of uh, of this man's life if you want something if you want to start someplace like like fun and light episode 29 is just about behind the scenes on groundhog day it's uh, it's called the classic and it gives you a bunch of trivia about sort of what that film was like what his experience was like and a bunch of observations about being in the film industry and and that's really fun though i cannot remember which episode it was he goes into detail about working with uh, steven seagal and that's the memory that i'm forever oh going to carry out of this uh out of this podcast he's a, a consummate storyteller he's very very kind honestly very sweet and very wise and so many of these podcast individual podcast stories kind of start with like here's maybe a piece of trivia about uh, a film that you know and love and then go into like a, a long and thoughtful story from his life that might be about film or might be personal or might be something else entirely. And then come to a really surprising conclusion. It's it's really well crafted. I'm so excited it's coming back. Tasha, uh, how about you? What what would you recommend? Well, nothing as good as the Tobolowski Files. I'll tell you that it's been a week. Uh, it's been uh, we're, <laughs> we're recording these because of the whole situation where we recorded our uh, pair up for Kajillionaire and Dogtooth, and then realized that Kajillionaire wasn't coming to VOD for another couple of weeks past the date where it was coming to theaters. We're recording this exactly one week after after the last one uh, and it's 
certainly wow, been an way to ruin the podcast week. magic, Tasha. I know you're really up for uh, it's, faking it this. all. It's all assembled out of different fragments, <laughs> and I fooled you, and I know more than you do. But I'm going to let you behind the scenes because I'm a benevolent uh, Kirsten Johnson host as opposed to a smarmy ass Orson Welles host. The point is, I haven't had a lot of time uh, to watch. What, what's an email address where you send complaints to? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tasha mispronounces is everything at nextpictureshow.com uh there's also phone number where you can leave us voicemails yeah haven't had a lot of time to watch stuff and also due to uh political stress and gestures vaguely at world uh, i have not been much in the headspace for watching films so during a particularly stressful moment recently i sat down with trolls world tour (laughs) which was just literally the only thing i could contemplate putting into my brain at at that particular point in time i loved the first trolls the the 2016 trolls it was one of those films that i sort of grudgingly went to see out of a feeling of like we it's it's a big animated movie we're gonna need to cover it and it just it delighted me it the songs are silly and over the top the surrealism is really rich that the like acid trip imagery is kind of remarkable and just overall it's just a very different kind of animated film trolls world tour is not that Mm -hmm. uh, at all it's it's a pretty bog standard kind of children's movie Uh, there's a bad guy played by rachel bloom from crazy ex-girlfriend she wants to steal everybody's uniqueness and make everybody the same there's a big message about how that's bad and why and how it relates to music (laughs) Uh, oh, and it's I just, can't wait to hear that message. It's just overall, and, and the, the songs are kind of fun, but just not inspired in the same kind of way. But the design of this movie, uh, I I could honestly recommend that people put this movie on in the background as a giant screensaver and, and mute it and just have it running. Or honestly, just examine it to see kind of some of the stuff going on in non-Pixar animation these days. The first film, kind of the framing device was that maybe the whole story was being told like via a scrapbook of the story that somebody had made. So there's kind of a framing device that involves like little felt versions of the characters in like a little like fiber craft book and it's all playing out. But then that that visual extends to the rest of the film, which is like fiber craft and paper craft. Like everything has a fuzzy texture or like looks in some way, like it was cut out or or drawn or sewn in some way. Uh, And the, the new one is just such a fiber craft film. It's so remarkable. I find myself just completely ignoring uh, whatever like big dumb chase everybody was supposed to be on or whatever like big broad hero villain moment was supposed to be happening. And looking at the backgrounds, there's a chase scene out of a Western where our hero trolls offend some country music trolls and are being chased through the landscape. And the camera pulls back to visualize this like, deep canyon with a river running through the bottom of it just very standard like western landscape and the canyon is made up of of piled quilts piled folded quilts and you can see like every stitch and texture there's a scene where the protagonist uh comes down to the shoreline of uh, a lake and looks at her reflection and the shoreline is visibly made out of like like the tattered edge of a, a ragged piece of fabric which looks like the foam at the edge of uh, uh the water just like 
everything in this film is so visually thought through and so beautiful when when the pop music trolls end up in the rock music trolls evil lair it's made up of ragged denim <laughs> when they're on stage together you can see like the the big thick weave of yarn used to sew the whole thing it's ridiculous i it it delights me to know how much thought uh went into realizing kind of the backgrounds and the setting and the aesthetic of this film it would have been so easy to make it a, another generic cgi animated movie but uh it's it's honestly really delightful and it's on hulu now so you no longer have to like pay an additional 20 dollars in order to have it for like three days you can just kind of click it on and and watch it randomly uh, until you get kind of like bored of extremely colorful kind of susy and whimsy in the visuals and then you can move on with your life and you can learn about the six types of music of which there are <laughs> there are no more, no other types of music but the six types of music well um somebody hasn't seen the movie because uh there are a bunch of other types of music as no, well I've, I've kind of get it. I've seen the wedged in. <laughs> yeah. So, so you say that like somebody who doesn't uh, strongly remember the Reggaeton sequence. And that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. <laughs> and that's actually it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Um, you know, our next pairing, we did a little bit of F for fakery switcheroo uh, because of uh, some scheduling issues where movies were getting moved around. So we're actually going to come back uh, next with our long-promised, hotly anticipated <laughs> pairing of Dogtooth and Kajillionaire, two films about unusual families. I guess we'll just leave it at that. Those will finally come out on October 13th and October 20th. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of F for Fake, Dick Johnson is Dead, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. Uh, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work in New York Times, uh, the, the Ringer, Vulture, Guardian, and other fine publications. I feel like I should also say I, I spent September working like crazy on three fairly large features, all of which will be out by the time you've <laughs> listened to this. So so uh, I, I wrote about uh, Letterboxd uh, uh, for the Ringer. I also wrote about uh, a profile of Kirsten Johnson, also for The Ringer. And then I have a piece about A Wilderness of Air, the FX adaptation of the Errol Morris book. Uh, that's for The New York Times. Tasha? I'm the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. I ain't written nothing lately, uh, but I'm hoping to actually get back into it as we wind September down and head into the exciting land of uh, small, strange October horror film releases. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Genevieve, how about you? Uh, I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture. And by the time you hear this, or the day that this comes out, I should say, uh, we will have uh, kicked off a big package that I have been working on for a while now on the 100 sequences that shaped animation. It's a big and impressive and very cool list that I'm excited to be to have out in the world, along with a lot of uh, supplementary stuff that I did not write, but it definitely had a, a hand in, in shaping. So um, I, I hope you will check that out. And you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? 
Uh, I'm a freelance writer, which means I, I write all the time for for places like uh, Mel and and, and uh, Vulture and The Ringer and uh, Rolling Stone occasionally. And uh, you know, I'm all over the place these days. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at nextpicturepod and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Bake Snakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proudly part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.